On this episode, the oldest Cub Scout troop west of the Mississippi, Buffalo Soldiers, and diversity and inclusion. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. Your hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. Uh, today, we have a, a very special guest, James Edward Mills, writer, author, journalist, and, and just about all-around amazing person. Thanks for coming on the podcast, James. Well, Jason, thanks a lot for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. It's been a while since we've been together, so I'm, I'm glad to be here now. Yeah, yeah. So, so you are an author of um, a book called The Adventure Gap. Um, and you also have a project called the Joy Trip Project. Do you want to just let everyone know sort of what you, you know what you do, why you do what you do? You bet. Well, uh, I'm technically a freelance journalist and independent media producer, and I'm based in Madison, Wisconsin. And I created the Joy Trip Project back in 2009, uh, ostensibly originally as a podcast. Uh, but it's also a web platform. I mean, it's basically where I do my work as a journalist, you know, creating stories about outdoor recreation, environmental conservation, acts of charitable giving and practices of sustainable living. And I think more than anything else, I like to say that I report on the business art and culture of the active lifestyle. And I recently, over the last, um, you know, probably five or six years, established a further specialty in issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the Adventure Gap is my book that details the story of the first all-African-American team ascent of Denali, um, which is the highest peak in North America. And uh, it's also the subject of a documentary film that I co-produced and co-wrote called the, uh, An American Ascent. And basically, a lot of the work that I do focuses on how we can create a space in the outdoor world where everyone is welcome, regardless of race, ethnicity, Physical, this physical ability, their sexual orientation, or their their body type. You know, so basically, it's all about creating a an inclusive, diverse, and equitable outdoor recreation industry. One kind of sad small admission to make about um, about the movie. I still have not seen the ending. I don't know if you remember this, but I went to see it at a film festival. Um, where the documentary that, that, that we made together, which is how we met, which we'll go to, into in a second, was playing there. So I was all excited to get to see it on the big screen. And about a half hour before it ended, the power went out in the whole neighborhood. Oh, <laughs> and, no. I, and, I, and I, it's been like two years and I feel horrible. I still haven't seen the last half hour. I'm assuming they all made it and no one died, which for an adventure movie is a good thing. Well, well, but, well uh, I can't I, promise I you that. Bad. Um, so I'm, I'm going to insist that you see the rest of the film. In I, fact, I um, as soon as we're done, I'll make sure that we get you a secure Vimeo link and a password so that you can nice. see it. Um, I frankly, I, th I think that it's a, it's a story worth telling and I, I'd hate to have you miss it. So, you know, uh, no shade thrown. I'll make sure that you get a chance to see the film. In entirety. Well, the first hour was very well made and, and it was kind of neat. I think uh, Scott Briscoe was actually on site to answer questions. So I got to meet him there, which was quite nice as well. Yeah, uh, James, I saw An American Ascent a couple of years ago and I, I was really impressed by it. I, in fact, I didn't even really real. I didn't know you 
And when we were doing, you know, scheduling this interview, I had to do a little bit of, you know, research. I'm like, oh, so this guy was involved in that. That was an awesome film. So I'm pretty stoked that we get a chance to talk to you. No, thank. Well, I'm stoked to talk to you. And um, and my, my role in that film and the telling of the story, I I, I want to just let everyone know that it's it, to me it was an act of journalism. You know, so anything that I did with that story, I basically just told it as it unfolded. And, you know, so that's why I won't tell you how it ended because, you know, you might be amazed or surprised or shocked or thrilled by how it ended. But as Scott Briscoe, one of the characters in the film said, it's a, it's a story and we like it. I haven't seen it, so now I'm even more excited. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll make sure that you all get a link so you can watch it. Yeah, it almost makes me want to attempt Denali, but almost. Not <laughs> That's a little bit outside of my, you know, the scope of my adventure, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, dreams, I guess, right now. But who knows? I, I, I think more than anything else, what I wanted and what I'm hoping that, you know, all of us were aspiring to is to have something to let people dream about or aspire to themselves. You know, and so if it made you think about doing Denali, that means that for whatever reason, you know, we help to create the notion in your head that this is something that you could do. You know, as unlikely as it might be, it is something that you could do. And that was kind of the point, because a big part of, of the mission of that film and much of the work that I do is to, you know, take out of people's heads the notion that there are things in the outdoors that they can't do. You know, and, and I think that that's one of the principal things that stops people from having positive experiences in the outdoors is because for whatever reason, they've told themselves that it's not something that's for them. You know, and, and so a big part of this film and the characters that we put forth in the book and many of the articles that I write and the projects that I do, you know, my whole purpose is to make sure that people can see themselves as part of the outdoor experience. James, you and I have very similar philosophies on that. Um, I think there's so many things about the outdoors that people find, like for you said, for whatever reason, feel like they can't do it. Um, and if they have a role model or have somebody that they can see that looks like them, that sounds like them, that represents them doing something amazing, there's that thing of like, well, if they can do it, maybe I could do it. And so I think there's so much power in representation um, in the outdoors of all kinds. So I really appreciate that as one of your missions. Um, I know that you mentioned uh, 2008 was when you launched the Joy Trip Project, but I believe you have a much longer history in the outdoor, like sort of outdoor background and outdoor industry. Do you want to share a little bit about how you got started in the outdoors and sort of how the outdoors became a part of your life? Sure. Well, I think... I literally need to go back all the way to when I was nine years old and became a Cub Scout, you know, and, and uh, growing up in Southern California, my brother and I had the privilege of being members of the oldest of uh, uh, continuously supported Boy Scout troop west of the Mississippi. Um, our, our troop was, was founded in 1913. It was troop number 10. Oh my God, and, awesome. um, you know, so from a very, very early age, I had really great opportunities to experience the outdoors, you know, even growing up in South Central Los Angeles, you know, from the Baldwin Hill Scenic Overlook, three miles from where I grew up, you can see the San Bernardino Mountains, you know, snow capped behind the Los Angeles city skyline. And that's where as a kid, from the time I was, you know, 12 and became a, a Boy Scout after being a Cub Scout, 
all the way up until I graduated from high school. I mean, that was our playground, you know, so we would go to the Sierras, we would go to the San Bernardinos, you know, we would go to Joshua Tree, we would, you know, have weekends at the lake, you know, we would have, you know, backcountry ski trips. In fact, you know, um, I climbed uh, Mount San Jacinto in winter, you know, when I was 15, you know, and, and this is back in the um, late 70s, early 80s, you know, and so this, you know, goes back, you know, for me over, over 40 years. Um, but when I graduated from college and decided that I wanted to make outdoor recreation my career, you know, I frankly was kind of casting around looking for whatever career options I could find. And right out of college, the best thing I can do, having gone to the University of California at Berkeley, was to get a job at the local REI store. And back then, there was only 12 REIs in the whole country. And Berkeley, I think, was number three or four, maybe number two. And so I started working in the, in the gear shop there as the, the lead sales representative for the rental counter. And so as an outfitter, I worked, you know, handing out gear, <laughs> um, you know, expressing, you know, what I felt was important about, you know, boots, tents, sleeping bags, you know, trekking poles, snowshoes. You know, we, um, you know, rented ice axes and crampons for people who are climbing Mount Whitney or Mount, or Mount Shasta or, or many of the other, you know, big peaks in California. So that was a big part of my, you know, early experiences in the outdoor industry. And so I started at REI in 1989. And so I think that's when I officially started my career in the outdoor industry. Uh, shortly after that, um, I took a lateral transition working for uh, the North Face as a customer service representative. And so basically I was on the phone and through back, back then we literally had mail where we would write to people or people would write, write to us about their equipment and we would get their gear back and we would make repairs and, you know, provide, um, you know, equipment and a variety of other things. This is in the days before the internet. And, um, I was on that job for eight weeks and, um, I literally was invited by the vice president of sales and marketing at the time uh, to come out to the parking lot for a conversation. I literally thought I was going to get fired. But the reality was that they said, well, you know, we've taken a look at your resume. It's actually very impressive. Have you ever considered a career in sales? And I said, well, no, because, well, there's an opening in the Midwest Territory for a sales representative and we're considering you for the position. And I had no idea what he was saying, but at the time, I remember thinking, whatever you do, don't say no. And I was literally thinking that um, it, I'd never heard of, of sales representation. I had no idea what it meant, um, but they were basically giving me a, a job offer. And oddly enough, my initial inclination was to not take it because my original plan, plan A, was to make the last payment on my 1985 Suzuki Samurai. Um, I was going to split my time between Yosemite and Lake Tahoe, skiing in the winter and rock climbing in the summer. And I was going to be just this guy living out of his car, you know, having adventures and doing what you do when you live in California. And so I got to work the next day after I got the offer and um, my cubicle mate asked me, so James, we heard all about your promotion when you leave. They said, well, I'm not taking it. I'm going to, you know, I've got plan A. And she says to me, do you have any idea how much reps make? <laughs> and I literally had no idea because we hadn't talked about money. And um, she types on her keyboard and pulls up this huge number. And she says, well, you get 8% of that. And so a week later, I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, trying to find an apartment. 
And so that began my career as a sales representative. And I did that professionally from 1992 all the way up until 2002. Um, and shortly after 9-11, um, I realized that, you know, all I could do was sell stuff. You know, there wasn't anything that I was doing that was doing much to change the world. You know, I was making a ton of money. You know, I was traveling. Um, you know, I wasn't having as much fun because it, at that point it had become kind of a job, you know, because I was spending a lot of time on spreadsheets and, and sales quotas and, you know, and I was traveling quite a bit, but I wasn't having very much fun. And so I decided that, you know, I, I want to change. So I retrained over the next two years after 9-11 um, to become a journalist. You know, so I basically took my, my interest in writing, which I'd cultivated throughout my entire, uh, you know, life. I mean, I'd, I'd been keeping a journal since I was 12 years old. In college, I was trained as a scientific writer in the Department of Anthropology at Berkeley. Originally, the plan was to become a college professor, um, but I never stopped writing. And so I basically retrained formally as a journalist, uh, quit my job, uh, closed up my sales agency, took a, a, um, an entry-level position at a publishing company that was producing a, a magazine um, for the Bally Fitness Health Clubs. I don't know if those things even exist anymore, but I basically did sales and marketing for them. In the back, on the, the back end of that, I was actually writing articles about how to stay fit in the gym for outdoor recreation. That was, that was my, my caveat. And I used that kind of as my entry level to, to learn the profession of publishing and journalism. And then I took a, a, a another lateral transition to the Wisconsin State Journal as a business reporter. And I did that for two years. Because every writing job that I wanted demanded that you have at least two years of newsroom experience. And so I got three years of newsroom experience. And um, after that, um, there was this new technology that Apple had been producing where they were taking audio files and they were turning them into uh, transmittable documents that could be um, downloaded onto an, iP an iPod. And they called it podcasting. And I think, wow, I could do that. <laughs> and so in 2005, I um, created a podcast called Snooze Live um, for Snooze, the outdoor industry online trade magazine. Um, and I did that for three years. And then the 2008 recession hit. And um, basically, at the time, it was independently owned. Um, and the, the, the owner of the company that produced Snooze um, didn't have enough money to pay me. And he said, well, I'll, we love what you're doing. We'd like you to keep doing it, but we can't afford to pay you anymore. Um, if you sell your own advertising, you can keep doing it. And so basically, he wanted me to go back into sales. And so I'm thinking, all right, I'll tell you what. Here's what we'll do. I'll keep doing it. I'll sell my own advertising. I'll quit. I'll start my own podcast. And um, in 2009, I created the Joychip Project, and I've been doing it ever since. You know, and so... And, in less than five minutes, it's basically the story of my career. I've been, been doing this now for 30 years and um, you know, love every minute of it. The, the trick right now is to, you know, figure out what journalism, what outdoor recreation means in the 21st century in our current cultural, social, political climate, you know, where we have this wonderful immersion of, of affinity groups promoting um, people of color across every race and ethnicity. We have an increase of, of representation 
for people with disabilities. We have an in increase in representation of people with different body types, sexual orientations. Uh, but at the same time, we also have a, um, a, a political crisis of, of what I'll call racial indifference, you know, where we have the need for a movement called Black Lives Matter, where we literally have to go out of our way to demonstrate that people of color are indeed part of the great landscape that is the outdoors. And much of what I'm doing now is hopefully to create space in which those lives can be able to practically and effectively enjoy the outdoors in meaningful ways and hopefully, you know, create a new generation of environmental stewards that will ultimately work to protect it, you know, to get us, you know, past the challenges of climate change and hopefully into, you know, a new era of environmental protection where, you know, we can get off of our our fossil fuels so we can start you know re limiting greenhouse gases and ultimately making our planet capable of of hospitable human life you know for another thousand years so that's the goal <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see where we, where we go from there <laughs> small goals small yeah, goals. it's all about keeping them manageable yeah i mean james you have such incredible perspective as far as like your time in the outdoor industry. And I think one of the things right now, there's so much that feels sort of so big and almost hopeless that, you know, it just seems like, where do you start? Like there's so much that needs to be changed. There's so much change that is happening. Um, and it's easy to feel sort of, I, I personally should say, feel like kind of overwhelmed with like, can't, you know, what change can happen? How do we make change happen? Um, you have such a history of experience in the outdoors, um, and as a black man who I'm assuming is one of the few, if not only when you were doing your sales work for the North Face to now, I mean, what what do you see as far as hope and what do you see like from a positive standpoint sort of over your career where we are now? And as you said, like as we're sort of at this turning point, right? Um, yeah, I was just going to say like, what do you see that's positive, that's hopeful and like as concrete actionable items to move forward in a in a productive way well i mean at the risk of of cracking up an even bigger can of worms here i mean um uh, my hope comes from the fact that uh, throughout american history at least we've done a really good job of successfully getting past our traumatic crises you know and, and that particular perspective comes to me from um, betty reed soskins um, who is the um, oldest living national park ranger. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, today is Betty's birthday. Um, she's 99 years old today. Yay! Wow. And, um, Happy birthday, um, Betty. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, and what's, what's remarkable about Betty's story is <laughs> when I first met her when she was 96, um, she told a story uh, um, in a, a conference that I attended at, at um, at Berkeley called uh, the PGM-1 conference. And PGM um, stands for People of the Global Majority. Um, one stands for um, Outdoors, Nature, and the Environment. And uh, she said something that was profound to me that has kind of framed much of my thinking moving forward. She described American history as an ever-ascending upward spiral of chaos. And basically, um, what she says is that history has a tendency of repeating itself. And, and we're kind of on this, this upward momentum of history where we keep repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again. 
And, but every time, you know, we seem to have come out on the positive side of progress. You know, and so I kind of concocted this theory that's going to be detailed um, in my next book um, based on, on what Betty has to say. So if you take this spiral and you lay it out on a timeline, you know, there are points in American history where you have what I'll describe as expansions and contractions of civil liberties. You know, and so the biggest contraction of civil liberties for, for black people in this country begins in 1619 you know, with the first transatlantic slave transaction where African slaves were um, transported by Dutch traders to Virginia colonists um, in a place called Fort Monroe. And so it was on this site that you have the beginning of, you know, racial oppression in this country. But you expand that out through to, um, you know, the next hundred years until you finally get to you know, 1776, but specifically uh, 1781, the Battle of Yorktown, where you have the Continental Army at the time um, is almost 15 to 20% African American. You know, you have um, people of color who are fighting for the, um, the creation of a free American government, um, and black people are there, and, and they, they're actually credited as having helped to, to turn the tide of war. And I think that that's amazing. And so you have American liberation. Awesome. Huge expansion of civil liberties. However, you, you immediately have a collapse of that expansion with the continuation of the institution of slavery. It goes all the way through um, 18, um, 1863, specifically, um, where ironically, at the exact same spot in Virginia, um, in the year um, 1683, I'm sorry, 1681, um, you have um, African, African-American slaves escaping from the South, turning this, themselves into the Union Army, ironically, at the exact same place where slaves were first transmitted to this country. Um, and that basically created the, um, the compromise decision of 1861 that began the, um, the decision around um, liberating African slaves who escaped to the North. Because back then, um, you have the Fugitive Slave Act of 1851, sorry, 1852, which basically says if you're a slave in the South, you're a slave in the North, and you have to be transported back. So at a time of war, these African slaves were called contraband. And so they were actually made to, they were allowed to stay and, and, and given their freedom. But that begins the creation of uh, an all-African-American regiment called the Massachusetts uh, 54th Volunteer Regiment, 100% African-American, um, volunteered to basically fight for African-American liberation in the Civil War. By the end of the Civil War, you have 180,000 African-American men in uniform, almost more um, soldiers than you have in the Confederate Army. So amazing, you get the, the end of the Civil War, this huge expansion of civil liberties, and from 1865, the end of the Civil War, all the way up to 1877, you have um, in incredible civil liberties opening up. It's amazing. <laughs> but what's remarkable, too, is that you get um, uh, 2,000 African-American men, sadly, we're still not liberating women at this point, but 2,000 African-American uh, men serving in public office after the Civil War between 1865 and 1877. Huge expansion of civil liberties, um, including 14 members of Congress. 
decade. So this is this is huge and it's very, very inspiring. But sadly, massive contraction in 1877 with the um, the election of, of President Rutherford B. Hayes, who um, basically ends Reconstruction in North America um, by removing Union troops from the South, ending the occupation, ending Reconstruction. The very next year, you have the creation of the Ku Klux Klan and massive um, racial, uh, racially motivated violence, segregation. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So then, so from 1877 all the way up through and including um, the, um, the beginning of the National Park Service. And this is where it starts getting kind of interesting because now we have institutionalized racism in this country with the Plessy versus Ferguson decision of 1889. And Plessy versus Ferguson basically gives us the doctrine of separate but equal. So now we have legal se segregation. So again, massive contraction of civil liberties. So I'm, I'm telling you these stories because these are the points at which we keep repeating history massive expansions and contractions of our civil liberties. You know, and so, and, and from that we get um, the, the Jim Crow era, but we also get the, second, the First World War where African-Americans volunteer to, to fight for American freedom abroad, only to, become, only to come back to the United States as heroes to be hung in their uniforms you know, by um, white supremacists. And then you get the Tulsa, Oklahoma City Massacre of 1921, which ultimately causes the collapse of the, of the African-American emerging middle class. Okay, so again, huge um, contraction. Okay, you get the, um, the Second World War and the, and the Depression, massive contraction of civil liberties. But again, African-Americans go on to fight for civil liberties in the, in the, um, the Army. You know, so you get the Tuskegee Airmen, you know, you get... Um, Dory Miller, um, an, uh, an African-American sailor who shot down a number of Japanese planes during, the, 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 um, during Pearl Harbor. You know, the very first act of heroism committed in World War II was an African-American. Amazing. Okay. So again, you have people of color fighting, working, you know, creating um, these points of liberty. You know, and I'm literally giving you my three-month lecture on, on, on American history and the black experience. But again, these, these points of history keep happening again and again and again. So fast forward to the, um, the, the uh, election of the first African-American president after, you know, you get the civil rights movement in the 1960s and, and we're living in what could be described as a post-racial post America. Um, the very first national monument that Barack Obama designates um, is um, the site at Fort Monroe. That was the site of the first um, African-American slaves, the, the site of the first African-American, um, um, the end of slavery, and basically the very first national monument created by the first African-American um, president. And from that, you know, um, Barack Obama basically created more national monuments and more national parks than any president since Theodore Roosevelt, 26 in total. Massive um, um, uh, expansion. And, um, and that, you know, leads up to and including the work that I've been able to become um, a part of where we have um, groups like the um, Next 100 Coalition that created the documentation um, calling for diversity, equity, inclusion in the management of our public land. Amazing. You know, and so we have this 
um, this effort that is um, trying to work aggressively to correct the issues of of uh, segregation and the efforts to limit African American and and all minority participation in the management of public land by creating policies that will uh, that are aimed to correct it, and that was signed um, into um, presidential memorandum of understanding on January twelfth, uh, two thousand seventeen. Unfortunately, Donald Trump was um, was inaugurated as president on January twenty third, two thousand. Um, 2017, and that thus begins another massive contraction. Okay, so my hope, you know, and long-winded answer to your very complicated question, comes from the understanding that we've been here before. We've gone through infinitely worse things than we're experiencing right now: um, slavery, Jim Crow, two world wars, you know, the Korean War, the Civil Rights Movement, all the way to get to our first black president we can get past this. Okay, so, so my hope and confidence literally comes from the fact that on this ever ascending upward spiral of chaos, we've been here before and we can get past this too. And my hope is that if we collectively work together and remember the heroes of our past, that we can ultimately start inspiring a new generation of people who will be able to do even more and exciting things in the future. One thing that I thought that was amazing when I interviewed you for the, for the documentary is, was talking about um, the history of, of different races just in the parks and in the wild spaces. I think, you know, for lack of a better term, it's been sort of whitewashed throughout history. But, I mean, you have all these, like the Buffalo Soldiers, you know, you have, um, um, uh, well, gosh, I'm sorry, his name escapes me, um, Sequoia National Park, the first superintendent. Oh, um, Charles Young. Charles Young. So, I mean, you have, they, you, you've always been, a, you know, minorities have always been a part of maintaining and protecting these places, yet, you know, it's not, I don't think it's really commonly known. Do you have any any thoughts on that or anything you'd like to add or any stories historically? And and frankly, I mean, I, I have initially to thank, um, you know, Ken Burns, you know, and the uh, creation of the National Park documentary to tell me literally in an interview that I did with him in 2009, right after I started the Deutsche Project podcast, the year that the, the, the documentary, the National Parks America's Great Idea, Greatest Idea came out, he tells me the story of the Buffalo Soldiers, okay? I spent my entire life living in California, working in the outdoor industry, and I'd never heard this story before, you know? And so when I hear as an African-American who thought he was a pioneer, <laughs> that there is an, a long and enduring history of African-American participation in the creation of our national parks that goes back to its very beginning in 1903. That grounds me personally in history and that in kind of radicalized my thinking to use history as a method to encourage people to understand their place in the present. You know, and so that's where I ultimately met um, our mutual friend, Shelton Johnson, you know, the, one of the few permanently stationed African-American park rangers in Yosemite today who tells the story of the Buffalo Soldiers. Now, sadly, Shelton's um, a year away from retiring. And so I'm dying to know how we're going to keep those stories going once he's gone. And I think a big part of that is you know, where my job comes in. You know, that's where I, it's really important that I personally, and I want to encourage everyone to tell these stories as best they can. You know, because, you know, the, the Buffalo Soldiers, you know, also, you know, were pioneers when it came to bicycle touring. You know, not very many people know that in 1889, the Buffalo Soldiers 
um, were used as an experiment to use bicycles as a replacement for horses in warfare. And they literally pedaled from Missoula, Montana to St. Louis, Missouri, um, you know, a, a trip of almost 2,000 miles going through Yellowstone and Grand Canyon National Parks. Okay, well, what are now Yellowstone and Grand Canyon National Parks? Because this is 1889, you know, so they were there before they were even designated national, as national parks. But they, they basically were the first bicycle tourists. <laughs> you know, um, there's also a unit of the Buffalo Soldiers um, called the Triple Nickels, um, who... Um, and actually, for those of you who are from and live in the Pacific Northwest, it's an amazing story that um, during the Second World War, um, there was a, a plan by the Japanese to send thousands of incendiary hot air balloons across the Pacific, designed specifically to ignite the Pacific Northwest and literally set it on fire. Now, in a secret operation called Operation Firefly, um, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt sent a unit of paratroopers into the Pacific Northwest to secretly put these fires out. Well, the 555th um, Airborne Infantry Division was an all-black unit. Okay, so essentially our, our nation's first smoke jumpers were black men. And they, you know, they're the progenitors of, of what had been the Buffalo Soldiers. You know, so we know about the Tuskegee Airmen, but how many people know about the Triple Nickels? You know, and, and especially in our current fire season, I think it's really important to understand that much of what we do when it comes to fighting fires in the Pacific Northwest today was pioneered you know, by African-Americans um, for whom communities in Montana, Idaho, and parts of Oregon are only standing today because they put those fires out. You know? So again, I think it's critically important that we continue to tell these stories so that modern people of color especially, um, but anyone, you know, grounds themselves in the history of participation that goes back, um, you know, literally 100 years, you know, it, in terms of the national parks, but in terms of American history, it goes all the way back to the very beginning in, in, um, in 1619. So now there, there's obviously been a few programs, like there was the uh, Every Kid in a Park program. What was it, fourth graders, correct? That, that, mm -hmm. They got every, try to get every fourth grader into a park. What, what do you think are other ideas and other programs that, that, that might help? Well, I mean, I personally think that it's critical that we create opportunities for their parents too, you know, and also, you know, being able to create, you know, a new generation of, of, of role models and that can demonstrate how accessible the outdoors can be. And so the, that's one of the reasons why we created Expedition Denali so that we can literally have a high profile event where African-Americans are the characters that tell the story of how they got there. You know, but one of the things that has changed in my thinking in the eight years since we did that original project was Pile 2 mountaineering can be pretty inaccessible. You know, so how do we bring it a little bit closer to, to Earth by um, talking about um, green space that's closer to home? You know, and so much of the conversations that I'm engaging in right now is how we can go about creating a safe environment where uh, people of color can recognize their place as part of the natural environment, even though they might live in the city. So two years ago, I created a, um, a project um, called the Pathways Project. And the idea was to basically make a, a substantive connection between an urban center a national forest, and a river that runs between them. And if you think about it, um, rivers run through almost every major city in North America. 
And for this project, we began um, with two cities. Um, one was Portland, Oregon. The other one was Atlanta, Georgia. And we basically connected the Willamette National Forest through the Willamette River to Portland in Oregon and the Chattahoochee National Forest through the Chattahoochee River to Atlanta in Georgia. And so the idea basically was to demonstrate that regardless of what people might think about the outdoors, they have a direct molecular connection through the water to a national forest that is typically less than a two and a half to three hour drive away. You know, so they do indeed have a positive connection. And then we start talking about how we can make those connections. So one of the projects that I did in both locations is to go to the headwaters of both of these rivers and take people with me to, to show them how to get there. You know, to quite literally say, okay, you see the water that you're looking at right here? This is the exact same water that flows past your neighborhood in the city that you came from. And so that's actually true in Los Angeles. It's true in Chicago. It's true in Milwaukee. It's true in Oakland. I mean, every single one of these cities are directly connected to a body of water that is almost always connected to a national forest. You know, for example, you know, I kind of had a, an a, a epiphany as I'm driving from Oakland to Yosemite, and you can watch the Merced River connect all these landscapes. You know, you go from downtown Oakland um, in Chabot National, um, you know, State Forest, um, as you're making your way, you're driving through the Central Valley, you go through the oak savanna of the Sierra National Forest, and next thing you know, you're in Yosemite National Park. The common thread <laughs> is the river, you know, and so there, there are these points of contact, and we can basically, can, you know, help people to see the connections between the bodies of water, the the old growth forests and the cities that they live in, you'll we'll be able to see that they're all connected. You know, and so most recently, um, you know, taking the same general concept, um, especially in the time of COVID, you know, I um, did a, a similar project with um, African-American fathers and their sons, um, introducing them to the, um, the Chihuahua Nicolay National Forest here in Wisconsin um, to the Ice Age National Scenic Hiking Trail. So the Ice Age Scenic, National Scenic Hiking Trail is not unlike the Pacific Crest Trail or the Appalachian Trail or the Continental Divide Trail. It's one of 11 National Scenic Hiking Trails in North America. The Ice Age Trail is 1,200 miles long, but it actually connects a number of urban communities in southern Wisconsin, including Milwaukee and Madison. And so essentially using the trail in place of the river in this case, um, we basically took um, fathers and sons and um, created a positive experience for them in the north woods of um, Wisconsin um, and introduced them both to the trail and to the forest and let them know that the trail literally runs through their neighborhoods in some of these communities and that that is their direct connection with the great outdoors. But it's quite literally as close as their backyard. You know, and so I think that programs similar to this you know, can be very helpful, you know, especially if we can um, you know, get in the habit of making sure that we make these areas accessible for people who, for whatever reason, don't have access to them. For example, personally, I just celebrated my 54th birthday last week, and ironically, just happens to work out this way, my National Park Pass every year expires in the month of September around the time of my birthday. So last year, I got in the habit of buying my National Park Pass as well as another park pass that I will give to someone who can't afford it. 
you know, and I encourage other people to do the same uh-huh. thing right up to it, including getting national park passes donated and then having people nominate recipients. And basically I'll provide as many park passes as I have people that want them. But I want to make sure that we not only take economics out of the equation when it comes to barriers to access, but we also, you know, kind of take the notion that these places aren't for us out of the equation. You know, and so with these positive points of representation, with these examples of people doing amazing things over a hundred years of national park, national monument history, that they can actually have a part in this too. And it's as accessible as an $80 annual pass. And if you can't afford one, we'll see what we can do to get you one. So I definitely think that there are ways, you know, and I think more than anything else, what we need to do is be creative about what those ways are and try to, you know, figure out what we can do on a regular basis while we're enjoying these natural areas for ourselves. We figure out how we can encourage other people to enjoy them as well. I love that. So you sort of talked about some of the broader historical barriers and and things that have affected the community. I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand like, well, how come, uh, you know, African-Americans and other minorities, you know, didn't visit parks for all those years, you know, like certain things like not being able to stay in hotels and all those other barriers. Um, Just for those people that say, don't think this is an issue, you know, or don't think that this is a problem or don't understand, you know, what kept um, African-American or other minority families from visiting parks. Do you want to maybe just talk about that a little bit? Sure, Jamie, just you know, briefly in the time that we've got left, I mean, the, the long and short of it is that um, the national parks are reflective of the greater American society. And we've got to remember, and a lot of people are prepared to forget, that our country was profoundly segregated for two centuries, um, specifically as it pertained to race. And the restrictions that fell away um, in the 1960s um, didn't have the same level of corrective measures that we have in other aspects of, of, of American culture. You know, so you had professional organizations, um, doctors, lawyers, you know, engineers, um, business people creating positive opportunities for African-Americans and other minorities to become engaged and involved in those professions, in those pastimes, in those lifestyle choices. Those corrective measures never happened in the outdoors. Okay? There, were, there were very few, if any, um, direct concerted efforts to make sure that people of color were made to feel safe in the outdoors. Now, you kind of alluded to the Green Book, you know, um, which was a, um, a, a, a document that was originally produced in 1936 and was published until 1966 that pointed out all the safe places for African-Americans to be able to visit and travel while on the road. It was called the, the uh, Negro Motorist um, Guide for Safe Travel. Okay. Um, in 1966, I think most of us, myself included, because that was the year I was born, felt that the, the, that wouldn't be necessary anymore after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, you know, we're all, we're all equal now, right? Well, unfortunately, um, you, you still have um, racially motivated violence per, 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 perpetrated in wooded areas. You know, you have communities where um, you can be systematically discriminated against perfectly legally, okay, but still through social custom. And, um, and then, you know, we can get into the socioeconomics of outdoor recreation because it's expensive. 
Yeah, and it requires disposable income and leisure time, which African Americans in this country, because of economic oppression, have been um, denied of. So these things did indeed happen. Now they're 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 less significant now, but I can tell you that you know just last weekend when we were in the Northwoods of Wisconsin, we're packing up um, on our way to go home, and um, down the street past our motel um, is um, a guy in a in a monster truck. Um, trailing a Confederate flag. Okay, this is northern Wisconsin. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't think that that um, that someone would um, be flying a sign of racial oppression made famous in the South, in you know one of the most northern states in this country. But there it is. You know, and so there's this constant stigma of of how one will be treated in the outdoors. And unless we are able to create those positive experiences and go out of our way to make sure that people feel safe and engaged and involved, it's not going to happen. You know, and so the same thing is ultimately going to be true wherever we go. You know, and so I think that we need to make sure that um, as we are making the outdoors more accessible, you know, we're very explicit about um, our declarations to make sure that they stay safe. You know, like there's a, a video that was posted just yesterday of a young uh, biracial man in Florida um, who was out hunting by himself and was accosted by, um, you know, white people playing, um, you know, racially explicit um, music and yelling, you know, racial epithets at him and basically deliberately making him feel uncomfortable. Now, it's entirely possible that they met him no harm, but the, the, the acts of intimidation are still there. He's out there by himself with people with guns, okay? And that, I believe, was a, a deliberate attempt to make him feel uncomfortable and make him not ever want to come back, okay? This happened this week, okay? So we don't, we can't have our, our, our conversations couched in the ancient past as if these things don't happen today because they do. You know, and I think that we need to be very explicit about our our denial of these things. You know, and so that's why, you know, people can't say, well, all lives matter. Well, yeah, they, they do, but but black lives are at risk. Black lives are, are in jeopardy. And if all lives really matter, as you say, black lives are the ones that we need to put some effort into to make sure that they stay safe. And that's what I would like to see more of us do. You know, and I think that's especially true when we're talking about the outdoors, because, I mean, where are we more vulnerable in, in society today than when we you know, don't have the trappings of, of shelter, warmth, um, you know, uh, and food? I mean, we're infinitely vulnerable in the outdoors as human beings in the 21st century. You know, the one thing that can make that place safe is, is community. You know, it's science, it's technology, it is... Um, quite literally, the warmth of human kindness without those things, especially as they might be determined by one's race, um, people of color will ultimately be vulnerable in these spaces, and we have to do what we can to protect them. Maybe just, or maybe one last question or one last thing, if, if you'd like to talk about it. I guess we have kind of focused a lot on the negativity of, of the outdoors and the African-American experience. Is there anything you'd like to say to like inspire people of color, people of minorities to get outside. I mean, obviously it's been a big part of your life and you love it. I mean, well, I, I've been, been discouraging. No, you know, <laughs> no, no. but, yeah. but I, but here's, here's the thing. And this is what I think that that's critically important in that, um, you know, I personally have never felt more free than when I spend time in the outdoors. 
you know, and, um, and I feel very lucky to have grown up with these, with the skills and the, the community support and the expertise to allow myself to navigate these spaces comfortably. Um, and I personally think that um, with the support and training and encouragement of other people, anyone can have those experiences. And there are more and more people that are making it their job to make it so that people can indeed feel comfortable. You know, so that to me is a, is a vast improvement. Things are indeed changing, you know, and, and we can make these places safe for everyone. And hopefully, you know, within, you know, my lifetime or, or at least the, the, the lifetime of the next generation, we'll be able to literally see positive proactive change so that everyone can feel safe, happy, and supported in the outdoors. And, and you know, that's, that's the goal. You know, that's what we're hopefully all striving for and aspiring to. And if we get there, we can get there together. Awesome. That's just fantastic, James. Thank you, thank you so much for coming on. Honestly, this has just been 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 a wonder. I mean, I, I have so much respect and admiration for you and and everything that you do. Um, and speaking of everything that you do, where can people find you? Where can they follow you? Um, mention your book. Anything we can we can get people so they can they can learn more. The best way to get a hold of me is on my website at joytripproject.com. It's also my handle for Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So Joy Trip Project, and um, I will happily do my best to respond to your questions and um please don't hesitate to get in touch and your is your documentary available on vimeo for people to watch uh it is it'll cost you 3.99 perfect yeah don't send a code <laughs> yeah 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 don't send a code and i should plug we didn't really get into how james and i met we did there i did there was a documentary i made a few years ago i've mentioned it in the past called diversity and inclusion in the outdoors james is interviewed in it as well as some other amazing people some people we've had on the show previously um we'll have a link to that in the show notes so make sure to watch that um i think it's less than 10 minutes of your time but uh it talks a lot about these issues so so check it out totally worth it Hey, thank you so much for having me. This has yeah, been thank fantastic. You. Thanks, James. Yes, thank you, James. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media on Instagram at almost there underscore AP or almost there adventure podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at Adventure Us Women. That's Adventure US Women. Jeff at The SoCal Hiker or me at The Muir Project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto Music. For more about this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out the show notes on our website, almostthereadventurepodcast.com. The three of us are all going to donate National Parks passes, and we would urge you to do the same. Hit up James at the Joy Trip Project for worthy candidates. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>